Listeners, I should provide you a trigger warning before we start. This episode contains experiences, those of someone outside of the cryptid community, those of someone more grounded in reality than us. But most problematically, this episode contains opinions, my own opinions, and the opinions of my guest, Landon. Landon is my longtime podcasting buddy. Last summer, he took a month-long cross-country road trip. Along the way, and under my own influence, he took a detour into West Virginia. A bearded stranger found himself in a place stuck in time. Beelzebub did visit Point Pleasant that summer, and he sat down with me to share his experience. Landon is not a believer. He is not a cryptid enthusiast. He hosts Autopsy Podcast, for which he researches death and human tragedy very seriously, very objectively and scientifically. And due to the subject matter, he is not privileged, unlike us cryptid guys, to have fun with his interests and not treat them so seriously. So I invited Landon over to chat with me about cryptids, something he has never done before or been interested in. And I allowed us to have fun. Yeah, I'm a bastard. But I also learned something along the way, that outsiders will treat us seriously, eventually, once we learn to just have fun with this weird-ass hobby and stop zealously clinging to the teats of our sacred cows. Yeah, this episode is bound to piss you off. But maybe it's time we just burst this little bubble of ours and open up this weird hobby to the outsiders. The only way they can comprehend it. As sociology. As folklore. As the universe fucking with our minds. And even... Maybe as a joke. Oh, I can hear the pitchforks coming. Guys, today with me, I have a very special guest, and no, it's not Christina again. This time, guesting on my show is a very dear friend and my oldest podcasting buddy who I've known for, what, a year and a half. Mm -hmm. With me today is Landon, the host of Autopsy Podcast. Hello, everybody. Yeah, I do Autopsy Podcast. I don't know how you cryptid listeners would take it. It's... (laughs) It's it's kind of the exact opposite of that kind of stuff. But if you like true crime or whatever, it's it's not specifically true crime, but it deals with a lot of like true crime cases and deep diving into autopsy reports. So if that sounds interesting to you, by all means, um, it's available wherever uh, you get your stuff. 
So you always like to talk about your show and refer to your show as true crime adjacent, which is how I see my show relating to cryptids and the paranormal. Like mm -hmm. I'm more cryptid adjacent and I have had people refer to my show as that. So in a way, us two don't belong in any community and that's why we stick together, us adjacents. Yeah, whenever I was first making my show and I sort of had an idea of what it was, it was like I kind of looked at what was currently available in true crime podcasting and i was like mine just it doesn't fit anywhere as much as it's dealing with like true crime stuff i, I was like i don't know how ornery some of these people are so i don't want to like rain on anyone's parade and say no i'm true crime so i'm like i'll just say i'm true crime adjacent kind of you're more like forensic medical science yeah and even most of the true crime stuff people uh, focus on the drama i mean it's the same thing in the paranormal community um you just focus on the <laughs> facts of the autopsy report yeah and i tend to i think we've talked about this before like there's some other like true crime podcasters who i really like and i've talked to but sometimes i just feel like i'm raining on their parade <laughs> where <laughs> it, it's they'll be like what do you think of this and this and this i'm like yeah i don't know maybe <laughs> Um, I don't see it as much as you do, but uh, I sort of get what you're saying, but uh, I can't really help you here. <laughs> Somehow we are total opposites in the approach we take towards the adjacent community that we cover. So technically you do the hard science, you stick to the facts, you stick to what the uh, autopsy report says, uh, you don't go into drama and conspiracy theories. While I don't really take the paranormal seriously, which is shameful in the cryptid community because everybody wants to legitimize all this stuff um but but you can't like study unscientific stuff with science yeah that was something i was gonna i'd been thinking about does a lot of it come off as its own like religion it's like if you start talking to people and you have sort of a skeptic way about you it seems like some of these people <laughs> And now it just sounds like I'm saying you people, but it sounds like some folks would just, if there's any hint of skepticism in your questions or your whatever, they'll get very irate. <laughs> It seems like where it's like, why are you questioning? This? Like, it's almost like you don't seem to believe this. And because you don't believe it, I believe it. And because I believe it, that means I'll see more than you do. And it's like, that sounds very religion. That sounds <laughs> that sounds exactly like what that is. Well, I think from what I've seen in the cryptid paranormal podcasting community, like there are a lot of different people. Some are true believers who take this uh, very, very seriously, but some also take this very seriously and claim to do uh, more scientific things so they claim to be more skeptical but then you have like people like me who just want to talk about weird creepy shit and have fun I think the paranormal is not a scientific thing I think it is as you know a cosmic trickster force <laughs> and mm -hmm. you can't deal with trickery through the lens of science like if you are trying to uh, study something that deceives you you are not going to employ a scientist you're going to employ a magician you know mm, yeah and some of this stuff like again i do some of it is interesting on on the level of like they said what now where was this and and like we were talking about it it kind of became a part of the road trip i took last year i mean it wasn't like that wasn't all the specific places i was going but when i wound up in west virginia you're just like you sort of fall into sort of the when you're in a state like that you're like mm. I, I see where some of this stuff comes from because there's nothing here <laughs> 
Yeah, and somehow you are in this atmosphere of a liminal space and it influences your perception of reality in a way. Also, when you go to Point Pleasant and cross the Silver Bridge, I mean, the bridge itself is a liminal space connecting two different points. Yeah, well, I was more taken in by the scenery of the state because Point Pleasant, it's not quite like the rest of West Virginia. West Virginia, and again, like we've talked about this, like West Virginia was one of the, I just for context for people like I drove around the whole country having seen like a whole bunch of stuff like I still would think back to West Virginia as one of the most beautiful states I drove through and just the scenery alone you're just like wow this is it has a wild feel to it and that's where I'm like this is where the cryptid stuff comes from I'm like West Virginia feels wild and I mean untamed kind of wild because there's so many rolling hills and mountains in every direction that paved roads just don't go to because they can't (laughs) Because it's not a yeah, super yeah. wealthy state. and that, That's what I mean by saying liminal space. It is something stuck. It's something between rural and urban. And it's just stuck in this place uh, perpetually. I don't know. It, it, it's, it's such a weird atmosphere where your mind just goes to uh, different, <laughs> different places. I'd be curious because when you go to Point Pleasant in the modern day, again, that's why I say it's, it's very different from the rest of the state because you're right there on the border of Ohio. By the time you get to that, a lot of the mountainous area of West Virginia, it's not really... I mean, you can see some of it around Point Pleasant, but Point Pleasant just feels like just another kind of almost a generic city at this point. So, like, I wonder what it looked like, you know, 50 years ago when all this stuff was going on, if it looked more like what maybe the rest of the state looked like. Because when you drive through it, you're just like, oh, the, the rest of the state is almost enchanting how it looks. And then you get to a Point Pleasant or like maybe one other city in the, in the state and you're just like this isn't representative of what the rest of the state kind of looks and feels like and yet Point Pleasant has a very if nothing if not unique history yeah yeah. Do you know, like, when you got there, I'm obviously not somebody who would know because I'm half the world over, but does it feel like it still has that atmosphere from the 60s if you're referring to just a generic small town? No, it doesn't have that because, again, the, the Mothman Museum is right in the middle of, like, their downtown area, and it's just you're surrounded by buildings and shops and all that stuff, and it looks like any other kind of normal Modern small city modern city well not a big city but just like a modern village city whatever you want to call it not small by any stretch really not big still lots of businesses and restaurants and all that kind of stuff like the only frame of reference and it it wouldn't mean anything to you or probably most anybody else it reminded me a lot of statesboro georgia which is close to where i grew up i live in a very small town and growing up like statesboro was the closest thing savannah was a little bit slightly further away but statesboro was the closest thing in terms of this is what you would think of if you thought of just like a modern little city and that's what point pleasant felt like and then in the middle of town you have the mothman museum and it almost doesn't even it just sticks out there's a museum and then there's the statue and you just sort of look around at the rest of everything you're like this doesn't i was like i bet a lot of people here do not like this (laughs) (laughs) You get that sort of feel to it. But when you drive out to what used to be what they called the TNT area, that's pretty well because it's a wildlife reserve now. So it's untouched, but it's grown over. It's brush and all this stuff. And there's dirt roads you can drive through. And that's kind of cool because you know when you're driving through it, like the roads aren't paved. You know that this has been basically untouched since everything happened all those years ago. So you do, that's when you start feeling like, okay, this is kind of neat. Even though there's nothing out there, you 
you start driving around and you just, again, it, it feels more of that, again, that untouched part of the state where you're just like, huh, it doesn't fit with Point Pleasant modern day, but it's kind of got that weird feel to it of like, all this stuff happened all these years ago and this hasn't been almost like a time capsule where none of this stuff's been touched. And I'm pretty sure I saw a barn out there, but I didn't drive up because some dude was out there walking around. I actually saw on the website of the Mothman Museum that they do tours of the TNT area. That would probably be cool. Yeah, so in a way, like, people go to West Virginia because of the cryptids, but as you stated, they stay for the scenery. Yeah, and again, West Virginia is just this very, because it's it's got a reputation, like, growing up, I didn't, when people talked about West Virginia growing up, it was never about cryptids, you know, nobody really talked about that, at least down here. Um, if anyone ever talked about... <laughs> West Virginia, they were, I mean, this is sort of the pot calling the kettle black, you know, Mm -hmm. they would refer to like West Virginia as like hillbilly type stuff, which is how movies like um, Wrong Turn get made. And it's set in West Virginia and nobody questions it (laughs) and nobody seems to get mad. You're just like, you guys were cool that they said this, (laughs) that they're almost mocking your state. So now now that you mentioned Wrong Turn, like context for the listener, even though we've been recording for 15 minutes now. So Landon and I have started our podcast around the same time and then started chatting on Instagram. This was a year and a half ago. Uh, Last summer, Landon was going on a month-long road trip cross-country. And he asked me, like, do I know any any cool uh, places he could visit? And of course, as a cryptid enthusiast, I stated, go visit the Mothman Museum and the Flatwoods Monster Museum. So Landon's trip to West Virginia was kind of a wrong turn a detour Mm -hmm. sparked by me but like we'll we'll hear his story now and discuss it more yeah it uh because i was basically trying to map like i yeah was mapping out the places i wanted to see and trying to make a big circle around the country i was going to be in new england and then i I don't think i had anywhere in west virginia set up i I think you were first in salem before you went to west virginia Oh, yeah, yeah. But I was in a few places in uh, New England. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also visited Stephen King's home. Where exactly is it? That is uh, Bangor, Maine. That's his. I don't even know if he lives there anymore. I mean, it's still his home. I think he uses it a lot for like rider retreats and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But when you get there, it's it's the kind of house that, of course, he would have the big like wrought iron gates. And it, it just kind of he, he keeps it up to look like what he knows people expect a house owned by Stephen King to look like. He's got a big like wooden totem that sits in the front yard. And you're just like, what the hell is that? And and he probably just keeps it there for that reason. He's like, people are going to come by and they're going to wonder what the hell is this? And that's the only reason it exists there. But Maine is very like West Virginia in that way. It has a very kind of wild side because it's very rural. There's Portland, Maine, and that's a bigger city. But that's all the bigger cities are kind of on the coast. All the more inland stuff is just like, again, it's just like small little towns and villages. Um, and then the sort of the further, I didn't, I didn't get to go as north in the state as I wanted to. Bangor was as north as I went. It seemed like probably the more north you went, probably the closer to Canada you get. Like, it, it, there's probably just nothing out there. But So what did you actually know about Mothman and Point Pleasant before you uh, even considered visiting that place? Um, Not too much. I saw Mothman Prophecies, the movie, when I was a teenager, like a young teenager. Yeah, me too. 
and had no idea it was based on based on in quotes actual stuff that happened once upon a time that movie was more marketed as like a almost a, a supernatural thriller psych- yeah psychological but some supernatural too but when yeah. you watch it it's just if you're not familiar with any of this stuff it just comes off as confusing so i just remember <laughs> You're watching like the you're watching this movie called The Mothman Prophecies and having no context to what that is. You don't see a Mothman the entire movie. Yeah. And at a certain point, they even almost stop mentioning it. I watched the movie like ages ago. You watched it this winter. I think I remember the Mothman appearing uh, relating to that first, uh, not the first, but the most well-documented sighting of the two couples in the car in the TNT area. Well, again, Mothman, the movie is set in the modern day when it was made yeah it doesn't take place when all the stuff supposedly all went down which is kind of weird because in the end it portrays a real catastrophe that happened yeah but it makes it take place in the modern age which it didn't Damn, dude. it's a when again when you finish watching it you're just like because i get making a movie and trying to be vague about a lot of things because honestly the book starts getting very vague about a lot of things i sort of get them trying to do whatever they're doing but you could still set that in like the six i don't know if they were just like no we're gonna save money because if they set this in the 60s we got to build elaborate sets and find old cars and costumes and all this stuff but yeah it was a weird thing of just like yeah let's move the catastrophe that happened 50 years ago however long and put it in like the 90s or whenever the movie was set very bizarre choices that movie made because the first thing you see in the movie is uh, the main character richard gear and his like i don't know if they're married yet but basically his fiance who's the chick from like will and grace uh the redhead and they're driving down the road and and i think she's driving maybe i can't remember who but she they're talking and she's looking at him and then she looks towards the road and she sees and the way it's cut together it's like a flash and you could if you pause the movie you might could make out a shape that would look something like a mothman but it's done very almost abstractly the way it's designed where you see a shape and it all you could almost say maybe that's a wing and then you see two things that could be eyes but it's very it's a very quick flash and it's the only time you see anything like that in the movie and it's from her point of view so the whole time it's just like was that even there and then she winds up with like a brain cancer type thing questions whether or not she was just delusional i mean that is reminiscent of a lot of mothman sightings because they took place around cars and were what it was witnessed by people driving yeah i think in the book there is this case of a guy who was driving his wife and there was a ufo or a bright flash of light i think maybe they went off of that uh, story yeah i'm sure i'm sure it was based on something like that but. but but the interesting thing in the book like they didn't do that in the movie the guy looked at the light it shined brighter and his glasses started to melt and a whole lens of his glasses fell off then his wife took over the steering wheel and saw a mothman after that whole thing she did not see a ufo um, hmm. the guy ended up in the hospital because of this and i started reading the mothman prophecies again uh, a few days ago just to prepare for our discussion but like i've started it 10 times and i've never finished it because it always leads me to some rabbit holes that i need to research well the whole we were talking about this the book is nothing but rabbit holes where the book is called the mothman prophecies you start reading this book it takes 
I don't 50, 60, 70 pages to get to the initial first reporting sighting and all that of Mothman. You're just like, what are you? Because he spends all this time setting up his ideas and his theories and all this stuff so that when he finally starts talking about Mothman, he that's where the thing like with Keel, I'm just like, I just don't know with him because I see how seeing how he writes, I'm like, I sort of see how you're doing with your storytelling. You're setting up all these ideas and sort of your beliefs and all this stuff so that whenever you get to the story, you can sort of cherry pick the ideas you really like from all these sightings and tie them back to what you already set up as if it proves what you were just setting up. And from there, and it talks about that and then the injured cold stuff and then the men in black. He's putting all this stuff in there and you're like, I don't think synchronicities, dude. In his opinion, but whenever I read it, I'm like, I'm not seeing what you're seeing. I see you trying to put together ideas, but I don't think they jail quite the way you think that they do. Yeah. I mean, do you know that Keel, while he was in the military, was apparently a writer for uh, propaganda articles? (laughs) I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I can and see before that. before the military, he was also a writer for uh, pulp magazines. <laughs> you don't say. Uh, I mean, yeah. uh, for for people who like this stuff, it's very engaging. We we like to go into rabbit holes and uh, look for synchronicities between all these events. I don't mind that, but his writing's all over the place. Like he can't focus on one idea and explain it. He starts with one idea and then he jumps to another and then another and then another. Like it's almost it's borderline psycho. <laughs> behavior (laughs) because if you've ever heard the term flight of ideas yeah when people start talking and it's like word salad and they just go off all over the place his writing's kind of like that it's like did he did you not hire an editor and have them make this more cohesive because you're jumping too quickly to too many ideas where if you would just sit here and focus on this thing and then move on to this thing and reference the other thing as needed like you you would probably get a <laughs> you would get people paying a little bit more attention yeah so when i read uh, mothman prophecies the book i find it fascinating like every paragraph resonates with me on so many levels but that's because i'm deep into this shit and because i have become a crackpot as him um back in his days a lot of ufologists thought that he was a crackpot because ufologists like to stick to the extraterrestrial hypothesis that ufos are nuts and bolts (laughs) alien crafts while he goes into magic and psychic phenomena and ultra terrestrials he is all about disproving aliens but proving a lot of more weird shit yeah it's almost like almost like he's trying to do a sleight of hand type thing he was actually initially interested in magic Uh, as a 12 year old he he wrote an article for a magic magazine and his uh, first book which is i need to find the title of his first book now just so people don't shit over me (laughs) oh man yeah you said see but even you couldn't finish the book and you like this stuff i got so far into it and i was just like i can't follow this anymore okay so his first book jadu in 1957 it is all about magic and he traveled to tibet southeast asia to study their magical traditions magic was his primary focus and then eventually he went on to study ufos and then whatever (laughs) came after ultra terrestrials Hey guys, Darwin for the future here. So I needed to actually make sure that I'm understanding this book correctly because there is not much backstory on the internet. And from what I see, it was originally marketed as 
fiction, and it is the first book written by John Keel. So I reached out to another podcaster, a podcast named Six Degrees of John Keel, and they are amazing guys, and they know their stuff. So, like, if we're talking about Keel, who else do I ask <laughs> to verify information? So they stated that this is actually a nonfiction book. It is sort of like a memoir and travelogue because Keel really did travel through Egypt, through India, through Nepal. He did not go to Tibet from what I understand. So this book is actually a memoir of his travels searching for black magic in what was then described as the Orient. Um, now very questionable to use that term. So uh, Jadu actually is a Hindi word meaning black magic. And yeah, this book is, you know, actual evidence of Kiel's original interest in magic before he ever started uh, researching, you know, UFOs and aliens and men in black and stuff like that. Okay, so back to the episode. <laughs> You know, in saying that, also note to people, based on like the way I'm describing this stuff and based on, you know, my show Autopsy and kind of what I describe that as, a lot of people might think that I'm into just more like nonfiction-y type stuff and, and stuff. And I'm not. Like, I grew up, there's a reason I visited Stephen King's house is because I read a ton of his books. When you mentioned like the stuff with Tibet, I'm interested on another artist of sorts who that's heavily influenced, and that's David Lynch. Yeah. That kind of Eastern type stuff. Eastern philosophy. Especially Talpas, huh? <laughs> I, that's what I was... I'm working my way to that. Oh, like, man. If you watch, um, because I love Twin Peaks and I bug you about it all because you'll, you bug me, you, you'll just send me the same stuff over and over. And I'm like, okay, we're talking about this. All right. We're about to have Twin Peaks talk is what we're about to have. <laughs> um, like the stuff I find it really interesting, as long as it's sort of presented in an interesting way in Twin Peaks, the, even though in the first two seasons, which is what made the show popular, they don't ever say the word Tulpa. They just say doppelgangers. And then when the third season comes out, it's almost like a retcon, but not not really. They sort of get into it a little bit more and they start using the term tulpas. And I was like, okay, had no idea what that was. And then, yeah, started reading Mothman and, and there's the word over and over. And I'm yeah, like, yeah, it's in chapter one. Yeah. I was like, okay. And you've pointed out like the David Lynch version of tulpas probably isn't the mo more traditional version of what it is. Mm hmm. But, well, I don't know, because we've talked about it. Some of his stuff is, because I think I described it once, and you're like, that's not what a tulpa is. But then I had, when I went back and tried to describe it again, you're like, okay, that makes, that sounds a little bit more what your version of it is, because his is very much like it's a doppelganger. It's conjured by these otherworldly, whatever. It never really says who they are. They're just otherworldly beings. They're conjured up, and they're created from kind of a host, but they're their own thing. Like, once they're created, it's like they carry yes. the memories they carry a lot of the, the past of the thing they're created from, but they become their own autonomous sort of being. Yeah, and basically that's the Western interpretation of a talpa as a thought form, a thought being. And once you conjure up this thought being, it becomes autonomous and independent of its creator. Now, the person who popularized talpas in Western society, I can't remember her name, but she wrote a whole book about mysticism in, in Tibet and talked about how she actually conjured up a talpa in the form of a bumbling uh, fat priest. 
and he was doing some uh, weird shenanigans um, and she eventually needed to destroy this talpa. I don't know how she destroyed it, but essentially she could not control it and it was doing weird shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the monks probably told her, like, you need to destroy this thing. Hey guys, Darwin from the future here. So the lady I'm referring to, she was named Alexandra David Nail. I think that's how it's properly pronounced. I actually listened to a few French videos to make sure. And she was a Belgian French explorer, spiritualist, Buddhist, anarchist, opera singer, and writer. She is most well known for traveling to Tibet back in the early 20th century when Tibet was closed off to outsiders. It was actually forbidden for foreigners to enter Tibet. Now, her most famous work was published in 1929. It is a book titled Magic and Mystery in Tibet. And this is the book which actually popularized Tibetan mysticism in the West. Now, in paranormal circles, she is most known for being the first documented tulpamancer, a person who conjures up tulpas. And how the story goes is that she started visualizing this tulpa sort of like an imaginary friend or a self-induced hallucination. And it was forming in the shape of a friar tuck-like figure you know, a fat, jolly priest. But over time, she noticed that this being started having a life of its own. She could not control when this hallucination, this mirage of a being would appear. And eventually, people around her started asking her questions about this weird stranger walking around. So, you know, this was evidence that this thing was manifesting into reality and that it was not just something in her mind. So she needed to destroy this talpa by employing a series of of Lamaist techniques to eventually absorb the tulpa back into her and the tulpa was reluctant to being destroyed so this was a whole process that took many 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 days to accomplish so yeah if you are interested in her story i would suggest listening to an episode from six degrees of john keel it is another podcast i've befriended the past few days i will link the episode in my own episode description so back to the discussion with Landon. Would you say that cryptids in general tend to come from areas that have two distinct landscapes, maybe mountains and trees? Because West Virginia is like, whenever I always think mountains, I usually think Colorado Rocky Mountains. There's no trees on it. They're just mountains. But West Virginia is very much like you see rolling hills and mountains in every direction, but they're all green. They're covered in trees and anything could be hiding out there. Anything, cryptids, serial killers, whatever. Washington State has that too, where it's lots of mountains and trees and basically nooks and crannies where anything could be hiding. Seems to be the bread and butter for cryptids because I don't remember hearing much about like, you know, Rocky Mountain cryptids because it's just snow and ice and everything's just going to die up there anyway. When I was in West Virginia, <laughs> I guess we can talk about the, uh, the Flatwoods. Monster so, Museum. Uh, actually, I'm like listening to you and I'm searching on the internet. I can't find his name, but there is actually a serial killer who is from Flatwoods, West Virginia. I find it funny how you say that these mountains and trees are hiding cryptids and hiding serial killers because yeah. that actually the truth. <laughs> That's something that the reason I brought up the Flatwoods thing is because I told you I walked into that museum and then walked out and I was like, this is stupid. <laughs> like, this is the stupidest thing. So, Mothboy Matt, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry. <laughs> 
It's so like, and I'm not even like downing the. I don't even really know what the Flatwoods monster kind of is. Like, how would you describe the Flatwoods monster? Hell, if I know, it's a. <laughs> I've seen the statue they have at the museum. I, I know what it looks like, but even that, you're just like, it looks like something from like the day the Earth stood still. <laughs> like it, yeah. it looks like. I mean, it looks like something that was created in the 1950s. The initial sighting was in 1952, so it makes sense. So, and and I don't really know what the lore to it is that much, and I, I think I've read it and it just left my mind. Because when you go into this museum, that's the thing with Mothman. The Mothman, I would recommend going to the Mothman Museum. Yeah, it has that 60s feel. It, it has that, but it also has the stuff that I find interesting is, and I sent you the photos, the handwritten notes Mm-hmm. The handwritten witness statements to, that they wrote to the police saying th- this is what we saw and they described it. And it's all like, I think there were four people in the car that night, all wrote handwritten statements. And they have those in the museum and you look at it and you're like, that's that's the coolest thing in the museum. Because you're just like, that's a piece of documented history. Yeah. Um, whether or not you believe what they said, they all wrote it. They all described the same thing. Like, and that's that, really that's cool. That's something we don't even see with UFOs or cryptids nowadays because everything is online and maybe maybe that's why we don't see ufos and cryptids nowadays you know maybe i mean there's something to be said because anybody can go online and just write whatever they want and you're just like this yeah like creepypasta and reddit scary stories to go to the officers of the law yeah yeah and say and not only just say no we saw this and the officer's like sure you did you want to actually write that and they're like yeah we do want to write this and you're like oh okay that's a whole different context of you're actually going to write what you saw and sign your name on it yeah. that you believe it i was like that's that's where you're just like whatever you put on the internet is kind of like who cares you can put anything on the internet it takes some balls if you're going to make up a lie to go to officers and all tell the same story and write something and sign your name next to it yeah the, the most like famous case of that when we're talking about police reports and having balls to do that in 1955 in hopkinsville kentucky i already told you about the story the hopkinsville goblins so essentially mm-hmm. one night a whole family was had a home invasion situation with uh, goblin entities and once the goblins went away they they went to the police and reported everything but this was a family that lived without electricity without plumbing and they were very private and they they did not believe in cops you know it was not a family that would go telling lies to cops so something really like spooked them i i mean obviously on my show i believe it is owls <laughs> <laughs> the the government investigated they had theories that these were uh, monkeys that escaped from a circus <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes these skeptics have to go through these mental gymnastics and make up theories that are more preposterous than just saying, yeah, it's aliens. What year did that happen? 1955. So that was three years after Flatwoods. It also influenced pop culture, like, you know, the movie Critters. Whenever I see Critters, I remember the Hopkinsville encounter because it's a rural family uh, having their house assaulted by little alien goblin things. So you say Critters and I say Gremlins. (laughs) Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, because when you were describing it, even back, even the first time you were sort of going over it, I was like, I sort of see where gremlins got their whole, the whole plot of their movie from. Yeah, but they didn't do aliens. So somebody needed to profit off of that. And 
they did the smart thing and they didn't really ever explain what the gremlins were or where they came from. I didn't see critters, but I do know, yeah, it was, these are aliens. And you're like, okay, well, I guess that's cool that you told me that. That makes it more interesting. And again, you would think our two headspaces, you like the aliens version. I sort of like the more mystical gremlins version. I mean, in gremlins, they originate from Asia, if I'm not mistaken. Well, it's an Asian store owner who has them, but they never really, uh-huh. and he calls them an Asian, he calls them mogwais. They never really say where they come from. Oh, so I'm just a bastard who's assuming. It's <laughs> Some people would say it's borderline racist these uh, days because they're like, oh, the Asian man had the mythical creature in his Asian shop in Chinatown, like yeah, New yeah. York. But like, I, I recently did a Cryptid ABCs where I made fun of that exact thing. Uh, cryptozoology is basically cultural appropriation. And you have these Westerner uh, imperial bastards going to these indigenous countries adopting their monsters and the names of their monsters but once it comes to the west it is completely changed from what the tradition is here here's an example talpas i mean that's not a cryptid but what what us to think of talpas i think of talpas from the aspect of john keel's books you from twin peaks but those are actually thought forms that were popularized by theosophists in the 19th century, and they have nothing to do with what talpas are in Tibet, because talpas in Tibet are a spiritual thing, and they are not a negative thing. They are the beings that are manifested from Buddha. I don't know all the details, but I know that the Dalai Lama is technically a talpa, and they are here to spread wisdom and knowledge, while our version of a talpa is some kind of malevolent thought form being. To be fair to David Lynch, to the great David Lynch, they don't technically attribute tulpas to Tibetan uh, philosophy, but in the first season, one of the main characters, who is kind of the main character of the show, the FBI agent, talks about a lot of his beliefs, and he mentions that a lot of it comes from Tibet. So at least in the show, like they acknowledge that a lot of the stuff they talk about is uh, Western theory of sorts. Yeah, but have you ever heard of Helena Blavatsky? Of course, I've never heard of that. <laughs> okay, she she was a very prominent uh, mystic, um, and she started the Theosophist movement. And everything we now think we know about Eastern philosophy and Eastern mysticism and magic actually has roots in Theosophy, which was very popular in the 19th century alongside uh, spiritualism, you know, when they had those seances mm. uh, with mediums. But when we are <laughs> on the topic of seances... Say what you need to say. Okay, going back to... Because I didn't really finish the thought on the Flatwoods. I don't know the lore, and you know why I don't know the lore? Because when you walk in this stupid museum, they don't tell you. When you walk into the Mothman Museum, you can read the reports, and then they have the signs and that give you a rundown of what started yeah. all this. Flatwoods doesn't have really anything like that. Yeah, but I, I'd say I'd say the Flatwoods Museum is more John Keel, because even if you read John Keel's books, he never uh, introduces you to anything. He just starts blabbering on and you need to be already aware of all this yeah but even with keel even the mothman prophecies the book he eventually gets to the thing that set off the mothman all that stuff and describes it to some degree when i walked into this museum to flatwoods which by the way is in sutton west virginia even though sutton west virginia is way smaller than flatwoods you sit there you're like how how the hell why would they put a museum like so much of west virginia is the middle of nowhere anyway 
Flatwoods isn't a huge city by any stretch, but you sit there and go like, you usually put a museum in a bigger city. Here's an interesting tidbit. So remember that goblin assault encounter I told you now? in 1955. Mm. So the family that was assaulted by the goblins, their last name was Sutton. Mm. Synchronicity? (laughs) Sure. Sure. Yeah, you go into Sutton and Sutton is so tiny. The entirety of the town is maybe two blocks. And that includes a courthouse, a couple of shops. There's a cafe. And other than the cafe, I don't think there's a single other restaurant in Sutton. You walk into this, the Flatwoods Museum, and it's got some balls calling itself a museum. It is tiny. You walk in, it's this, I mean, it's kind of a big open room, but it's, there's nothing in it. It's, it's a bunch of artwork that you say people donate to. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of lines the walls. It's just artwork of... It's basically fan art. Fan art. So I wonder, was the, the big statue or the big thing, is that was that donated as well? I think it was, yeah. I see on their entrance, they have that post, big cardboard poster from the movie that was made, the documentary, by Small Town Monsters. But there's no... Like, I think maybe there's a TV playing, playing like, I don't know, something, maybe a DVD on repeat that's someone talking <laughs> about Flatwoods and the history. Maybe, maybe but- it's the documentary documentary i mentioned it could be but like i don't know to me if you're going to make a museum you need to have something that people can walk up to and read it doesn't even have to be that much like this is when this happened this is what they said here happened here here this is a basic foundation of what a of what flatwoods monster was not that's not really in the museum it's just all this stuff it seems like from what you're describing it seems like it's more of a fan shrine for people who are already into this yeah that's a perfect assessment of what it is but yeah the sign you were talking about i sent because i took like a handful of photos because there's just not not a whole lot to see in it besides the fan art if that's what you want and then there's like a small merch table (laughs) and that's about it but there's a sign and it made me laugh well when you first read it you roll your eyes and you're just like man these people because it says no seances Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, they actually, the fact that they had actually had to make a sign about that, it tells you the kind of people that come there. The true funny part of the sign, when you actually read it, it says like no seances and then there's some small print beneath it. You can post it. You Feel free to post that photo because it made me laugh. Yeah. What they're trying to say is thank you for your cooperation. But what they wrote on the sign, because this is not a handwritten sign. This is a sign someone printed out or had made up. Instead of saying thank you for your cooperation, it says thank you for your corporation. <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm thinking like maybe it has some different meaning, but that's because I'm in the Kiel zone from reading Kiel the past few days. I walked out of the Flatwoods Museum and I was like, okay, I'm never coming in here again. <laughs> and um, then w- what did you do right after that? <laughs> I walked down. So if you walk out of the museum and the museum's to your back, if you turn right, when you walk out of the museum, directly in front of you is the main road in and out of Sutton. So if you turn right, you're just walking down the first block that has the museum and another thing. And then you walk to the only other block in the town. And that has something, I believe it's called the country store something like that. I had nothing else really to that I wanted to see or do in Sutton and I was really let down so I was only in the museum maybe 15 20 minutes and I was like I drove all the way down here for this. 
And you can't even perform a seance. Yeah. This is more of a criticism of the museum itself. Like, there's not a whole lot to do in there. They should be welcoming people to do seances in this place (laughs) because there's nothing to do in there. So if you walk out of Flatwoods Museum and you turn right and you walk down the block to the next block, there's a store called The Country Store, I believe. And it's kind of a knickknack shop, just kind of odds and ends of they got some like retro candy and stuff you can buy, um, a soda. But then they have like just kind of like little artwork and little like it almost seems like stuff that like maybe local artists have made and sell in there little like statues and wood cutouts and stuff like that a country store and i'm walking around looking i wish i could remember the guy's name he's the store owner and he was the guy behind the counter that day he and i just started talking i just sat there and i talked to him for like two hours straight we started with the flatwoods museum i was like the hell is that museum And he's just like, yeah, he was like, it's hard to tell with that kind of stuff. He was like, my take on it was it was some sort of like government like rendition trying to like make up an android or of sorts. And somebody laid eyes on it and didn't really couldn't. Again, so, it just sounded like something out of the 50s where the government, something stupid they would try to build that wasn't. <laughs> That wasn't well made and someone walks up on her like, what is that? He's like, that was, if it was, he was like, if it's anything, that's what I would think it was. That That's actually one of the theories proposed in the first book that mentions Flatwoods. It was by Gray Barker. It was, they knew too much about flying saucers. I wanted to go into Gray Barker and uh, John Keel, but I, I don't know, like, we're, we're just chatting. Uh, you know how in the Mothman Prophecies movie there are lots of these weird phone calls? Yeah. And did you read in the Mothman Prophecies how John Keel started getting a lot of phone calls? Yeah, I think I do remember that. Yeah. So mo- most of those fo- phone calls were actually from Gray Barker because Gray Barker was another uh, journalist and uh, book publisher of these paranormal things. And he pulled pranks on people. He also uh, conducted a lot of hoaxes. And he was <laughs> fucking with Keel. <laughs> he was fucking with Keel to instantly investigate uh, this phenomena and so Keel can write about it and so Gray Barker could eventually maybe discredit him because he was a rival. Hmm. I almost want to read more about it just because you're just kind of the old, like an OG troll of sorts. Yeah, yeah. I, like... I actually really, really love everything to do with Gray Barker, but the paranormal community does not because after he died, his family let everybody know, yeah, he was a hoaxer and he was in it for the money. But I see him as a myth maker. I see the value in hoaxing, in instigating paranormal phenomena. You keep the myth alive. The reason we are talking about Braxy now is because of Gray Barker. Hmm. See, I have a certain level of respect for that because trolling on the internet these days is easy. Anybody can troll. It's it's why it's not super impressive unless unless you see somebody like saying some like legit. You're like, oh man, that's they're gonna get thrown off this platform for saying that, even though they're clearly trolling. You're yeah. just like, mm, that's <laughs> they're like they're really giving it to them. I mean, maybe people will think that we are trolling now because we're shitting over everything they like, and I do create a podcast that has both the Flatwoods Monster and Mothman on its logo. Well, see, that's, when, that's, that's why I brought it up right at the beginning is like some of the stuff is interesting to read about, but like people create these like sacred cows where you're not allowed to like criticize it. You're not allowed to like, like, hey, they that's documented. There's actually there's there's documented evidence of blah, blah, blah. And you're like, sure, there is. OK, like they can't take a joke. You, they, they won't. It's religion. It's like you can't make fun of my God. I can make fun of your God, but you can't make yeah. fun of my God. So speaking of trolls and trickery, like my own view. Views 
on the paranormal phenomena, you always tell me, oh, you're cosmic joker bullshit. <laughs> but yeah. I, I see the paranormal as some kind of natural or cosmic force that is just fucking with us. And the only reaction you have to provide it, the only appropriate reaction to the paranormal is to fuck it back. And not treat it so seriously. And I even like read some articles recently about this thing called the self-control hypothesis of the paranormal. It's essentially that the paranormal is a self-control mechani- mechanism of nature or of uh, reality itself. Once we overstep some certain boundary, this self-control mechanism activates to put on a show for us in order for us to get back in line. And if you want to study the paranormal, you need to base it and then you need to fuck with it it's a stage play the only way to break the fourth wall when you're when you're watching a play is to let's say throw a tomato at the actors at the cast and for a brief moment you can see this is all just acting and this is not real actually breaking the fourth wall so those are my views that's why i like gray barker and everything that he did a lot of people will now unsubscribe from my podcast after hearing that but fuck it where does the idea of like once you see something it kind of sees you you know Mm -hmm. um i feel like that's an idea that comes from like what you're talking about where you see something like a flash out of your eye or something you're like what was that and it's like reality broke for a second and if you try to focus on it and try to see it like suddenly it sees you suddenly you're it's like your fates are kind of intertwined at that point yeah i see that as quantum entanglement Mm. That shows up in like random, like ran- if anything like does ever like supernatural or like interdimensional stuff, that's sort of like at a base of a lot of the, a lot of it. Well, you, you know that I have a biology background and mm-hmm. I don't know if I told you, like I believe in something called the Gaia hypothesis. It's that the planet is a giant superorganism composed of every organism on this planet, including mm-hmm. us. And just like your body is composed of cells and each cell is an organism for itself but it's they all work in unity to keep you alive as a super organism so let's say some of your cells go rogue and become cancer Mm-hmm. and cause shit to your body then you will go take tests whatnot and then you will start noticing those cells while you are healthy you are just living your life on your plane of existence you are not noticing or perceiving the cells that compose you so in a way if we compose the universe and we overstep some boundary the universe will notice us because it needs to put us back in line mm-hmm. and because we are its components yeah it's a neat idea do you know, going back to cryptids more in like popular culture, do you know who Bobcat Goldthwaite is? Yeah, yeah. Y- you, so you know he's kind of very fascinated with Bigfoot? Yeah, I know he made a kind of Bigfoot comedy movie. I didn't see it. it yeah, it's like a Blair Witch for Bigfoot. I never saw yeah, it either. Yeah. But yeah, it's just strange because when people really start taking that stuff, like, I don't know, it's again, he made a comedy movie or whatever he made. It's like, how seriously do you take it? But from what I understand, he's he's into this stuff. You know how I see it. We have been searching for Bigfoot far too long. Have haven't found anything. So obviously we are taking the wrong approach to it by treating it seriously, by treating it scientifically. You can't study unscientific things with science. Now I can go the woo-woo route of John Keel and say Bigfoot is an ultra-dimensional entity or a fairy or a demon or an extraterrestrial, you know, whatever. 
or as I like to put it, it's a Jungian psychosocial archetype that exists in every culture around the world, and it's part of the human experience. But like, if if it is not a physical being, and we've been searching for physical evidence, maybe the only way we can prove its existence is by studying it through the lens of what it is, a sociological, psychological phenomenon, folklore, mythology, you know, the only way to legitimize it. So you're going to love this story then. So when I was talking to the country store owner guy, and we were just talking about everything. I think he was originally from like Pennsylvania, um, somewhere around the area. And And that's cryptid country. And he moved down, I don't know how long he'd been in West Virginia, but he started talking about stuff like, you know, you know, Mothman, you know, Braxton County and that sort of stuff. And he's like, did you know West Virginia also has a Bigfoot lore Uh going on? And I was like, and by the time he told me this, I was like, of course they do. Why, why wouldn't they? I mean, every state has a Bigfoot. I don't think Georgia has a Bigfoot. He starts, I forget exactly what he talked about. He's like, he started telling me their version of it. And that's where, like I was talking about earlier, the idea of West Virginia being this kind of untamed place. He was the one that pointed out, he was like, you've seen West Virginia, you've seen the mountains and the trees and all that. He's like, he's like, anything could be out there. He's like, so of course we have a Bigfoot lore. This wasn't, he hadn't made this up when I was there. Um, there was this back room to the country store that I didn't go in. He's like, yeah, that's where the Bigfoot museum's going to go. <laughs> and, uh, I think that's what started the Bigfoot conversation. I was like, the what now? (laughs) And he was, and he's like, yeah, he's like, we got a Bigfoot lore type thing. He was like, and I was thinking of making a museum to it. And this is what made me, while you were talking, made me, I was like, you'll find this amusing based on what you just said. I I actually made, I actually find this very amusing because you ran out of the Braxy Flatwoods Monster Museum and were thinking, thank God I am not going into another cryptid museum. I'm just going to go to this country store and then the store owner tells you that it's going to be repurposed as a bigfoot museum it's still the country store but he was going to make the back room into like a museum of sorts but what made me think that you'd find this amusing he's like well when i set it up i'm going to have a more a more scientific approach to (laughs) the (laughs) the thing and i was like while you were talking while you were talking about doesn't need to be researched from a scientific point i was like well that's what he said he was going to do i think it's set up now like i think i and isn't that like a big middle finger to the Flatwoods Museum in a way? You went to the guy and he says, oh, I don't know what that is. Oh, by the way, I'm making a Bigfoot museum. Yeah, but I mean, but to be fair to him, he was like, he, he was like, well, the version of Bigfoot in West Virginia, it almost ties into their... <laughs> into their uh their hillbilly roots we'll say is like you know it came from like the old man or something in the woods i think is like at the base of it is how they sort of described it and then along and along it sort of became a bigfoot kind of lore to be fair to him he is like it's big it's bigfoot but it's not like the traditional pacific northwest version of it i only know that west virginia has a sheep squatch now i don't know if he was referring to that Maybe he was. I don't know enough about all that. Another cryptid you'd find amusing in West Virginia is Veggie Man or Vegetable Man. (laughs) Of course. Of course they do. Just like with Bigfoot, I I think there are a lot of researchers out there who would say, I am going to study Veggie Man very scientifically. (laughs) 
Can you imagine having to tell people this over and over and over again your whole life? What do you do? And have to step because they take the, uh, all these people take themselves so seriously. Yeah. I study veggie, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he was the, the, it was the, again, cause whenever I went to West Virginia, I was like, I'm going to see, you had talked about the Flatwoods monster thing. I was like, I, I guess I'll go see that. And then I'll go see the Mothman stuff in Point Pleasant. And you saw the ghost town as well. Yeah. And that's because when I went to Sutton, walked out of the Flatwoods and went and talked to the country store owner, he was the one that was like, well, he's like, you're not that far from New River Gorge, which is the giant bridge in uh, West Virginia. Uh-huh. He's like, you may as well drive down there. He's like, and there's some, there's a ghost town down there. All right. That sounds like if I ever did another, tr- another like cross country trip, well, number one, I don't know if I'd ever go that far out west again. I'd definitely go back to West Virginia. But not for the cryptids. I don't know if I... Well, I'd like to go back to Sutton just to see that guy again. Just, he was a nice dude. I'd like to just stop, stop and be like, hey, man, remember we talked for two hours yeah, years yeah. ago? But I wouldn't go back in Flatwoods, no. <laughs> There's no reason to go there. I might go back to Just Mothman. so you know, like, I know a lot of people will be pissed listening to this. <laughs> Good. Like Good. Uh, a few of my listeners are podcasters who actually visit the Flatwoods Museum every year. Yeah, I mean, if you like that stuff, visit it. I'm just saying, if you're more like me and you're and you just want to see something interesting or hear an interesting tale, Flatwoods really ain't it. Like, there's yeah, yeah, the, the lore to it isn't that. I mean, as, as we stated, it's more like a, a fan fiction thing. It would be like you going to the Pokemon Museum and you don't know shit about Pokemon and you're not interested. God no. I'm so thankful that I never got that fad. I, I got out of that by the skin of my teeth because like people a year or two younger me love their Pokemon. I mean, I, I'm a huge Pokemon fan and I am not at all offended by your reaction now. It's all just fun and games. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not poking fun at like Pokemon. People love it, but I just look at it and I'm like, that's not for me. That yeah. Don't need it. But yeah, the guy told me uh, about sorry, the Sorry, sorry. Uh, what's funny there is that you actually love N- Nintendo games. Yeah, I do love. Yeah. And what is also funny is that the Flatwoods monster appeared in a Zelda game. <laughs> Did it? Yeah. Which one? Oh, man. Do I need to find it now? <laughs> Why you do that? So the, uh, oh, what I was going to say was if I ever did another trip again, I'd like to see more ghost towns in the U.S. because they're just, they're just really neat. Country store owner, he's the one, he's like, you go down the New River Gorge and there's a ghost town. So I went mm-hmm. and it's, it, you have to, it is the ghost, it's called Thurmond. It's not that far from New River, from the bridge of New River Gorge. It is, it takes a minute to get to because it's very remote and you're on these windy West Virginia country roads. And then to get into the town proper, you have to cross a one-way bridge, meaning if there's somebody on the other end trying to come your way, one of you's got to back out and let the other one come in to get to this town. And it, it's like an old like mining town, railroad town. I don't. It, it's as much as West Virginia is in the middle of nowhere. Thurman is really in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I think I read on the internet it has a population of five. Thurman. Yeah, that's the, the yeah, ghost that's town. shocking. But when you get there, like the buildings don't look that old and decrepit. You're just like these. Like for this to be a ghost town some of this looks fairly like you couldn't use it you'd have to probably renovate it it doesn't look as old and like worn down as you think it might be and then i got out of my car at a certain point and started walking down the track and i walked about a quarter mile out of thurman down the railroad track just to see how far i could get if there was anything out there by the way i'm pretty sure i saw someone dispose a body (laughs) 
like when I was walking down this track, there was room on the other on either side for like a vehicle to come, and there was like this black car that uh passed me while I was walking, and uh, like to really set the stage, like I'm walking along a track. Next to me is kind of a kind of a hilly like mountainside on my right. To the left is uh the river, and there's this all this grown up brush and grass next to the river, and this car is driving on that side, just close to the railroad, so it's not because if you keep going left, you're either going to, you won't hit the river first, you will eventually, but you'll go right into all this brush. And this car passes me driving out. Like, this is not a path that people just drive on. <laughs> they go out and they eventually park and I just keep walking past. At first, you're just like, maybe they're going fishing or something. Maybe they're going to park and there's like a little path down to the river and they're just going to throw some poles in or something. But they, like, they literally park in the brush. Like, maybe they were searching for a veggie man. Maybe, um, but like I was like, I'm pretty sure there's a body somewhere in that car and they are throwing it in that river <laughs> and they're doing it discreetly next to this brush so nobody can see. But yeah, I walked along the track and then walked back. And while I was doing that, there was a, there was someone out there who looked like he was renovating this old house. And you're just like, I, I guess it would be cool. I don't know if the railroad track is even still working. I mean, it looked pretty well taken care of if it wasn't, yeah. but this house was kind of right on, right next to the track, but there's nothing in Thurman. There's not even like a small con- there's nothing there. Like this is something this is almost like a cabin you'd go to on a weekend but it's part of a ghost town This is what this guy was renovating. So I just sat there. I was like what the hell is this guy doing? Because like, he, he was clearly working on the house with tools and stuff. Um, but it's like there's nothing out here. Like are they what the hell did these people do out here? So the video game is actually The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask Okay. I've never played that one but I know that's a fan favorite mm-hmm. I know Now there, there are a few SNES games. Nintendo really likes uh, the Flatwoods Monster. And for some reason, Japanese folks are infatuated with these 50s alien stories from America because the Hopkinsville Goblins are also very popular in Japan and appear in video games, most popularly in Pokemon as the Pokemon Sableye. Mm. Now, would you say that is cultural appropriation? They're appropriating us, you mean? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, we're Americans. We're not allowed to say that. <laughs> well, you know, we're not allowed to appropriate anyone else, but everybody can appropriate us. That's yeah. I, I wanted to say that. Like the other day, I posted on my story on Instagram. Like, if I wear a shirt with the Flatwoods Monster as a non-American, am I culturally appropriating? Because it seems like you guys only have a problem when appropriating other cultures, but when other people are appropriating yours, it's actually good for business. You know, you sell oh, your... We're uh, <laughs> yeah, We're like, yeah, yeah, you wear that shirt. You sell your cultural icons for money. Yeah. Hey, man, that's the way to do it. <laughs> and you know what? It keeps it alive. I don't know why people get so mad at it. <laughs> so to end this episode, and like we, we went to that topic now, capitalist pigs <laughs> please plug your stuff <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> patreon.com slash autopsy podcast you don't have to autopsypod.com has all my episodes posted um everything i do with the show posted i'm working on a new pod now you know about but it's not mm-hmm. it's not done yet and that's really all i got uh, do, are you willing to share the name of the new pod you're starting uh it's called horror makes you brave yeah and it's about horror uh cinema but you you asked me to sort of uh, guest yeah you asked me to guest uh to discuss the x-files yeah and it's that's why i put horror and not like movies or anything because i'll, I'll probably i 
I can talk about horror movies all day, but there's also great TV shows and there's great books I've read too. So it's not, it's not meant to be contained to like one medium. Yeah. So listeners, um, (laughs) if you are still listening and if you are not pissed enough, then please check out Landon's podcast, Autopsy Podcast, especially the episode on Elisa Lam, (laughs) which I recommended as a topic because (laughs) Because Landon made sure to cover the whole case very, very scientifically and objectively. And we know that pisses off the paranormal community. (laughs) I can't wait to see if I get like one star reviews from this doing this. You're not a true podcaster then if you don't have a one star review. It's true. But I just want to see it completely. Like I want to see the one-star review where it has nothing to do with my podcast. It's just some some asshole that's like, did you hear what this guy said about Flatwoods? <laughs> Screw him. <laughs> Screw his podcast. Yeah. Do yeah. not recommend. Oh, man. So how, how would we end this? Fuck. I'm always awkward. I, I, you know that I never like... I think you could just end it right there with uh, do not recommend. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I'm keeping this. Uh, j- just like John Keel's books, like I have no beginning and ending. And you know how I work. It's just I, I put you in the situation and and shit goes on and then it abruptly ends. Yeah. Like now. <laughs> and then yeah, and then you go back and try to draw a narrative <laughs> and connect the dots that don't make sense. Yeah, that's that's how I basically edit out my podcasts. I slice and dice and I rearrange. <laughs> You free associate editing the way he free associates writing. (laughs) Now I'm just, now I'm really just picking at him. (laughs) Like this son of a bitch. Did you hear what he said about John Keel? (laughs) So listeners, uh, if you're listening to this now, I probably recorded this at the very start and just mishmashed everything in my podcast. (laughs) Or did we? You don't know. Or did we? Then I'll put a sound effect, a mystery sound effect. <laughs> we could have talked about Thurman at the beginning and you added it at the end. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm ending it there. Who, who gives a fuck? <laughs> Podcaster Tulpas. Mm. Okay, guys, now for the plugs. I did mention a few books, but we also have a few museums to go over. And yes, I need to say that I am not sponsored. This is all just me. But first, a very special thank you to my artist collaborator and to the guest of my few prior episodes, Christina the Crescent Hair, who, after sitting down and chatting with me after a year-long hiatus, went on to make fan art for my show and just sent it to me and said, Here, Darwin, I want you to have this. That same fan art is what I am using as this episode's artwork. And, and, oh, the synchronicities! It features Braxy and Mothman, and yet Landon and I came to the conclusion that their museums are displaying fan art, essentially. Ugh, I love when these weird coincidences happen. So guys, go follow Christina on Instagram at the Crescent here, Crescent as in the moon, here as in the bunny, and look out for a very, very special project she is about to launch. And now, onto the museums. We were a bit harsh discussing them, and I should obviously plug them because regardless of what we talked about today, I am a fan, and I'd love to visit them. So first off, Point Pleasant, West Virginia on 400 Main Street, the Mothman Museum and Research Center. And around the same location, you have the Mothman statue, which was erected in 2003, created by artist and sculptor Bob Roach. And I do say erected, because it is very manly with 
chest here, and it has a tight ass that tourists just love to fondle. So, Flatwoods. Well, actually, not really Flatwoods, but the town of Sutton, located just two miles from exit 62 on I-79. Now, in Sutton on 208 Main Street, there is the Flatwoods Monster Museum. Say what you want, but I'd visit it if I could, if I was not half the world over. And like, if you are going on a cryptid road trip and are going to Point Pleasant, you might as well take a detour for a few hours just to visit this museum as well. The Flatwoods Monster has always been kind of a niche, silly thing. I've listened to a few podcasts with the museum's owner, and he seems like a very cool guy, and he is a big fan of this oddity, so yeah, it kinda is a fan shrine for us weirdos. And guys, special news! You know that country store Landon was talking about and the owner's plan to open a Bigfoot museum? Um, well, just as Landon was returning home from his road trip last summer, this Bigfoot museum did open to the public. The West Virginia Bigfoot Museum, located on 404th Street, Sutton, West Virginia, which also held the first annual West Virginian Bigfoot Festival that very same summer. So yes, another reason to go to Sutton. Imagine it's just amazing having two cryptid museums in this small little town. And now onto the books. Obviously, I mean, the Mothman Prophecies by John Keel. It's what we were discussing throughout this whole episode. Now, the movie, I don't know how much I'd recommend, but isn't Richard Gere a Buddhist? And we did go into tulpas and Tibetan mysticism. Ah, the synchronicities. Well, since we are on that topic, I guess you should also check out Jadu, John Keel's first book, where he traveled throughout the Middle East and Southeast Asia searching for black magic. It is not really hard to find nowadays because you can buy it on Kindle. But speaking of tulpas and Tibetan mysticism, if you are interested in the source of the Western idea of the tulpa, seek out the book Magic and Mystery in Tibet by Alexandra David Nael. If you are interested more in her life and work, you should also go check out the podcast Six Degrees of John Keel, episode 64, The Adventurous. And if you are interested in religious scholars talking talking about the Eastern and Western interpretations of the Talpa, another podcast, Monster Talk, which is the official podcast of Skeptic Magazine, actually did a miraculous episode titled Slenderman and Talpas. Both of these episodes will be linked in my episode description. And for the end, segueing way back to Braxy, the Flatwoods Monster, I believe this was the first book mentioning it. And even though in the same book it is stated that Ivan T. Sanderson himself investigated the Flatwoods monster, let's face it, the guy who widely exposed the story and kept the myth alive throughout the decades was Gray Barker. He wrote on Flatwoods in the first two chapters of his book, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. This is a must-read for any UFO enthusiast and is a cult classic, despite what we now know of Barker's... Uh, let's say gray morals and ethics. Because it is the very first book which also sparked the men in black mythos. So there it is, guys. I hope you have a wonderful April Fools and fall victim to many pranks of the Cosmic Joker. I know I have last April Fools when I released the final episode of my other podcast, Darwin's Deviations, also with Landon as my collaborator. And that episode ended up being the death of my podcast. 
podcast. How fitting. Which I did not plan at all. So I am hoping that I at least appease the cosmic joker enough with today's episode that hopefully history will not be repeating itself. So here's to turning a new page in my podcasting life. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I'm just going with the flow. The only thing I do know is that I'm on a road to nowhere. So come on inside. We'll take that ride. See you later, guys. <laughs>